You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice, and ideas, helping businesses and governments prepare for the future. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us in this third and concluding section of our ESG Perspectives podcast series with Danielle Welsh Rose, the ESG Investment Director in the APAC region for. Aberdeen and my fellow partner in the Malaysia office and head of our, our banking team here, Elias Mubarak. To those of you who, who weren't with us in, in the first two sessions, we've already had some really interesting conversations with Danielle around the ESG agenda and the challenges and opportunities that presents in the asset management industry and those related to the asset management industry, and in particular in Southeast Asia. And it would be great if you could listen into those as well, but you can very much listen to this one independently of the others. Some of the the sound bites, if you like, from the earlier episodes include the themes of, of trailblazing in, in Danielle's own career and the interesting journey she's been on, change management, ESG as a way for attracting talent into business, expectations on portfolio companies around diversity and inclusion and the importance of inclusion as part of that, the role of governance across all three limbs of ESG the differentiation of challenges between different regions, common themes and, and different themes. And here today, uh, we're delighted to, to explore a few concluding areas that we wanted to discuss with Danielle. And so, Danielle, thank you again very much for your time. Elias, if it's all right, I'll, I've already talked enough. I'll, I'll hand over to you to, to kick things off. Danielle, you, you mentioned you're not involved directly in the investment side of, of Abitant's business. And I know you head up their Sustainability Institute. Could you tell us a little bit more about the Sustainability Institute and, and the work that that does? Yes, um, so by not directly involved in investments, I just mean I'm not the analyst that sits on the desk and, and um, does that assessment of the company. So yeah, the Institute, we've um, been up and running for, what is it now? Um, probably about six months now. So still in our infancy. And so oh, this is also a question I find hard to answer in a distinct way because I feel like I'm too close to it. But um, <laughs> we, we pulled the Institute together for a number of reasons. So I guess possibly the less exciting internal perspective, we are a global organisation with a matrix reporting structure. In, um, you know, there's lots of teams in the region that, that report into the UK, not necessarily to, to other teams in the region. And so we're also physically have a presence in, I think, nine different markets across the region as well. So quite you know, a, a big spread of our group. And so a lot of our ESG experts, most of our ESG experts sit uh, in the UK, out here, when we set up the Institute, we had five different full-time ESG experts across three different teams in the region, and we've now doubled that capacity to 10, which is quite big um, for APAC for, for a fund manager. But when I came into the role, it was um, a little bit like herding the cats <laughs> on ESG. So, you know, we had already, I think, you know, there was four other, apart from the ESG people, um, in the region, they spoke to each other, but there's a whole bunch of other people that are not full-time ESG people that are working on ESG across the different markets and different teams. And they didn't necessarily know the other people existed or what things that they were working on as well. So um, pulling the Institute together from an internal perspective was one way of putting a really formal governance structure around all the good work that was happening in ESG across various teams and markets to make sure that we had a really strong you know, governance and strategy around what we're doing in the region. Um, but it was also a way um, of really further embedding 
how we integrate ESG into what we do. So when we talk about ESG integration, it's almost on two levels. So one is how we integrate it into the investment process, but one is also how it's integrated throughout the organisation to make sure that we've got a really holistic approach. And so, um, you know, as myself, I'm an ESG professional. I don't sit on an investment desk within the investment team, but on investment desks. And we've got um, analysts that sit on the investment desk. We've got distribution and salespeople who are, out there helping to create solutions for clients around net zero and things like that. So there's a a bunch of people working on this. So pulling the Institute together was like creating a centre of excellence, but without creating a mega team of ESG people that sort of sit in a silo or ivory tower or off to the side or however you want to describe it, which is often how the structures um, work within funds management asset ownership. So you end up with a bunch of people who are very passionate, very good at their jobs, that they're sitting outside of normal processes. And so you know, it's much difficult to integrate what you're doing when you're structured like that. So putting this governance structure across the ESG experts that we had, so across different teams, but keeping those people in their different teams, keeping them embedded in the organisation meant that, you know, we've got our ESG people closest to where they're needed, but we're all coming together under the one strategy to make sure that we're working in the same direction. So that was part of it. The other part of it was to create, deliberately create a space for innovation so we have this formal group. Um, we come together formally and also informally, and it's a deliberate space to have the conversations around how can we do things better, how can we do things differently. So how can we improve what we're already doing? What are our new ideas? Where can we go? What's happening in the market? Um, and also for us in the region, it means that we get access to the information at that different market level. So you know, the Japanese team might come in with this great new idea that they've had from talking to their peers in the region that you know, in Australia hasn't reached us yet, and so. We get access to all those good ideas as well. But from an external perspective, so we're, um, you know, ultimately there to make sure that we're developing, um, you know, leading solutions around sustainability and ESG for our clients in the region. So that's a clear, you know, we're a fund manager, that's what we do. But um, one of the other things that we're really um, trying to push out of the Sustainability Institute is to ha- make sure that we are you know, really playing our role in um, contributing to, I guess, I don't know the right words to say, but the industry development in the region or the regulatory development around ESG and sustainability. So we, as many of us are in the region, involved in a lot of these conversations with regulators and industry groups around how to um, best develop frameworks and regulations for the region. And so this is really making sure that we're pulling all our resources together to really um, have a strong input into that. But also our group is focused on um, lifting the capabilities within the region. So we do a lot already around client education around sustainability and ESG, um, and this means that we can really strengthen that position and provide a lot more, I guess, content, but also deliver the content in a way that uh, is a bit more sophisticated. So, for example, online training modules for our clients in in different markets as well. So we've got kind of multiple objectives, internal and, and external, but it's great. I mean, I really enjoy it because, you know, we get this group of people in the institute who come from the risk and compliance team, from the investment desks, from marketing, from distribution, from the corporate side. And, you know, there's people from Japan, from Malaysia, from Hong Kong, Singapore, from Australia, from different markets. And so you end up, you know, we're talking about diversity and inclusion before. Like these people are all from different backgrounds, different languages, you know, and different kind of academic backgrounds as well. And they just bring ideas in that can be quite left field and opinions that can be quite left field which I think is really valuable especially when we're looking at innovation so 
that's a very long answer um, <laughs> to the question. But we're still, you know, getting started and, um, you know, we've got a number of exciting events planned for the year um, from an external perspective and we're working on a, a number of things internally as well, which are quite exciting. So, yeah, it's uh, all new. Very inspiring as well. Do you really know one, no one having to look through bins like you did at the start <laughs> of your career? Aberdeen's <laughs> probably covered bins. No, yes, <laughs> um, but I shall add that to our project list. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> deeply unpopular. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't, but we do have, um, you know, corporate sustainability is wrapped into to what we're yeah. doing as well. So not the you know, gloves on in a bin uh, type of thing, but we are looking at that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going back there. I've done. I've done my yards. <laughs> Speaking of that, actually, uh, that reminds me of um, an excerpt of an article I was reading. Actually, that featured an interview of you, Daniel, where you spoke of your Gosh. early days, and you mentioned ESG as being a relatively lonely or quite a lonely space at the time you started off. It sounds like it's it's far less lonely now. It sounds like you've got far more. <laughs> There's far more people interested in joining or that have joined that ESG space, which is fantastic. Gosh, that article makes me sound like a really sad person. <laughs> <laughs> I was so lonely. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> jokes aside, so I was actually just speaking to um, a colleague in the industry this morning in Australia who um, has also been in this space for a long time. We were reminiscing about what it was like when we first met each other and we were all trying to create change and we were sort of sidelined within areas of people that are just kind of off to the side and being a bit annoying but don't really need to be part of the or have a seat at the actual big big person's table um yeah so I think you know when up until probably two maybe three years ago um in most asset owners and investment managers if they had an ESG person it was a person a single person often and they could be located in very creative places within the organisation, so not necessarily in the investment team. They could have been in marketing or in compliance or sometimes in HR. I think I've seen mm. that's been a location for ESG people before as well. So, And actually, I think this probably goes to sustainability people on the corporate side as well. And so I think so. one of the things that um, – a little sidebar here, but uh, the industry does a lot of collaborative work with each other so not just asset owners with asset owners but asset owners with investment managers in terms of ESG so coming together and working on either a collaborative engagement with a certain company or a sector or even into you know, government um, submissions and, and regulatory kind of development and part of that I actually think is because all of the ESG people for such a long time were the one and only in their organization and so in order to sort of have that support network around you and, and actually in order to influence change, sometimes you had to band together and share ideas and you know, come to those solutions. And, and culturally, it's interesting, it had never occurred to me to a couple of years ago that um, the ESG people, at least in Australia, I know it's the same in other markets as well. We tend to be a really close-knit bunch, even when we work for competitors. I get the impression from what you're saying, there's more and more people coming into the ESG sphere is it is it now there's too many people is there a war for talent is what, what's happening what's happening in that regard so we've moved from this whole you know just having a single person usually in, in the investment world um representing asset owners investment managers work on esg to having a need for big teams and you know that looks a bit different for each organization but yeah it's interesting it's just happened in the last few years there's been an explosion of demand for esg expertise and there's just not a lot of people that have those expertise yet so you know we're only recently really seeing 
university courses and, you know, the CFA has got a couple of subjects out now which really focus specifically on ESG or corporate sustainability um, if you're looking at that side of, of things. And so, you know, I think it's not that difficult to find people with who are straight out of university or with one or two years of experience. But if you're looking for people with five years plus of experience, there's not that many of us uh, floating around the world. And it's a particularly acute issue in Asia ex-Australia because it is a relatively new um, theme for the most part um, throughout Asia. And so you know, we're, we're seeing sort of big asset owners and fund managers looking for very experienced ESG people to lead you know, a new part of their business or to lead a large team. And it's very difficult to find those people and then you know, often convince them to move to a country that's not their home country as well. And so you know, we're, we're seeing it's sort of a war on, war on, war for ESG talent at the moment. And so we've gone from people who are as you said before, lonely and often underpaid compared to our colleagues um, in investment teams and sort of not with a seat at the strategic table to very quickly sort of being, you know, we're seeing chief sustainability officers um, coming on board and fund managers and asset owners that are sitting at that executive level. They're firmly at the table and not only at their table, they're included in decision-making and, and their views are actively sought and considered, which is a huge change. And now we're also seeing in some markets demand for those skills at the board table as well so it's definitely changed but what it means is that it is very hard to find people with skills in this area and it's also very hard to pay them in a way that's not grossly kind of it's the the wage kind of growth in this area is moving very very quickly as well so there's a bit of a um you know you've also got risks of uh when you've got esg talent already in the organization you've got a risk of how do you hold on to them if they're being offered enormously I guess larger salaries elsewhere so that is yeah it's an interesting thing I think it's a good problem that we have yeah. um but the flip side of that is that that's potentially you're seeing some organizations just either because they don't know what skills they're looking for because they just can't find the skills they're looking for putting people in these roles who don't necessarily have the right experience to competently do these roles and I think this is not my term, um, it, it came from somebody else, but this concept of competency greenwashing. So, you know, when, when we've seen it a few times where somebody has um, been employed into a very senior role, um, you know, in, in the investment world, but also in corporates that have no background in sustainability or ESG, but that's their, their role. And so there's this you know, new phenomenon around that, but it's this interesting thing that we're seeing. Really interesting. It's funny, we've been, sorry, touching on climate change. My phone in the background has been going crazy. And it turns out we, I felt a bit funny about 40 minutes ago. We've actually been experiencing uh, the tremors uh, after an earthquake in Indonesia. So it's sort of, you know, quite an extraordinary oh, wow. thing to happen mid-podcast recording, talking about, you know, various related themes. Danielle, we could talk for much longer. And you've already been very generous with your time. So I'm going to try to ask a closing question if I can, that's not, not as um, horribly broad as my early ones have been. But we're, we're about to hit AGM season and quarterly board meetings. And I think a lot of people outlook forecast around elements of ESG. Thinking of, uh, in Southeast Asia, if you were to try to pick three key things that business should be focusing on, and I appreciate different businesses, different industries, different considerations. But could you pick out a couple that, that you think should, should really be under the, the microscope 
at the moment, looking ahead? Okay, I'm going to try to answer this question in three, but I don't know if I will. I think obviously reporting, again, not the most exciting of topics, but this, I think, a focus on not just quality of reporting, but that element of materiality in reporting, so understanding what you know, exactly a business is exposed to and why it's important and then being able to report on that and not just on the risk but also how that may present opportunities and also what the impacts may be. That's a big one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's probably about 10 things buried in, in that one point. Um, yeah. Clearly climate change. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of um, country level but also, you know, individual business level net zero 2050 or net zero targets. Uh, I think what's really important is that organisations are able to demonstrate that they have a clear pathway to that and short and medium-term targets and milestones. And I think in this region in terms of thematics, you know, I think possibly to repeat myself, human rights and labour risks are clearly key modern slavery within that. Biodiversity is something that that is cropping up more and more and and risks and opportunities around that. Um, Governance is always there and also I think Possibly a conversation more around the circular economy, which I know I'm introducing a new topic now, but um, you know, we're seeing a lot around plastics and pollution mm-hmm. and how to deal with various types of waste. And so this concept of a circular economy, I think, will be more and more important as we go forward. I completely cheated then and gave you about 12 things. Okay. About no, that was great. It gives, <laughs> it gives people a, a longer list to, to focus <laughs> in on. So that, that's probably a good thing. Thank you so much, Danielle. Elias, of course, thank you. Thank you for being here and, and for your questions and insights. But the word privilege gets gets bandied around a lot, but with the career you've had, Danielle, and, and everything you're doing, it really is a privilege to have, have been able to, to speak with you and, and have this time and, and, and participate in this conversation. There's a lot more we could talk about, but thank you to those who have listened, and, and in particular, Danielle, thank you to you for your time and insights. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers, or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.